It is good to be with you this evening. I want to try to capture some of that energy you were just expressing uh, because we have a very challenging subject to address this evening. Some people would say I should not attempt to try to explain uh, how we got the New Testament, why we can trust it uh, in a short period of time. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that every Christian, you, you, just, you were just being told, we need to be able to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We live in a day when if you express to the world the belief in the gospel, they're going to say, where do you get that? Well, the Bible says, well, how can you trust what the Bible says? How can you believe that something that was written down 2,000 years ago has even been transmitted accurately to you to the point of today? I mean, you have a number of different English translations probably in front of you. I see people who have cell phones, and on your cell phones you probably have four or five or six different English translations, and there, there might be some differences between them. In fact, when I normally have more time, uh, I ask somebody in the audience who has maybe the King James, or the New King James Version of the Bible, to read for me John chapter 5, verse 4. And they open it up, and, and then I ask somebody to, to read uh, from the ESV or the NIV, John chapter 5, verse 4. And they all look at it, and you might look at it right now if you want, but I'll tell you right now, if, it's in, if you're looking at the ESV or the NIV, there is no John chapter 5, verse 4. It goes from 5.3 to 5.5. And so if you're in a Bible study class, and someone's reading along, and all of a sudden they read an, an entire sentence or two that you don't have, you're sort of going, well, why is that? And you might find it down at the bottom of the page in teeny tiny font, which at my age now looks like dirt at the bottom of the page, but... Uh, back when I was younger, you could still read it. Uh, and it says, certain manuscripts do not contain this text. And so it's no longer in the actual text. Why is that? And let's be honest with ourselves. How many of you have noticed those little notes uh, in this column or down at the bottom of the page? It says, certain manuscripts read this way, certain manuscripts read that way. Uh, and, and you've sort of said to yourself, I'm not sure I like that. Anyone ever, ever been bothered by those? Ah, ah. But how many of you then went to the minister and asked his, him, well, what do you think about this? A lot of us don't do that. But if you're a minister, you're hoping most of the time that they won't ask you that question because you're somewhat uncomfortable about it yourself. This is an area that I'm a little bit of a freak in. It is something that I study. I'm, I'm doing my, I just started my third doctoral degree in textual criticism uh, just, uh, just recently. So it's something that obviously I enjoy greatly. So what I want to try to do is give you a framework for understanding how we got the New Testament and why we can trust the mechanism by which God gave us the New Testament. And it's not that he hid one single manuscript up in a mountain someplace with some monk protecting it who never dies, you know, who's now you know, 2,000 years old and, and uh, is found in movies with Indiana Jones and things like that. That's, some people wishes that's how it would happen. That way you wouldn't have any footnotes in your Bible. That's not how God preserved his word for us, but we need to understand the real history of the New Testament. So can we trust the New Testament documents? And we're even gonna take a look. You, by the end of this evening, everyone in this room is going to know what that little piece of papyri is all about. Are you excited about that? Yes. How many of you are honestly not excited about that? No, oh, I don't wanna hear that, okay. <laughs> I don't wanna hear that. All right, so the current onslaught. What you and I face every single day when we, if we follow the news, if we listen to people that are being uh, interviewed, scholars spin the evidence, particularly in media appearances. The, the unbelieving world loves to find former Christians to interview on 
Uh, I hate to tell you this, but have you noticed you have something here called the BBC? Have you, have you seen that? Yeah. Have you noticed that they have a little bit of a bias or a prejudice sometimes? Yeah, I've noticed that too. They put out some very weird stuff and they, they seem to look for the weirdest possible scholars um, to talk about the Bible and Christianity. And what you're going to hear is they will emphasize that all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies from hundreds of years after the originals. And hence, because these are all handwritten copies that come from a much later time period, what that means is you can't really trust that even, even if you were to believe that someone like Paul, what he was writing was inspired, or, or what John wrote was inspired, leaving all that stuff off to the side, the idea is, well, but it was hand copied for, well, printing presses invented in the middle of the uh, 15th century, and it didn't become overly popular for another 50, 60 years after that in the West. And, and even once you had printing presses, printing presses don't guarantee perfection of copies. Ever heard the adulterer's Bible? Did you know there's such thing as the adulterer's Bible? There was something called the adulterer's Bible because there was, it was a version of the King James. And when they typeset it, they forgot to put the word not in the commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery. So it was actually printed and it says thou shalt commit adultery. So it's called the adulterer's Bible. So even when you print things, you still have to typeset it originally and mistakes can take place. And so what they're basically saying is, how can you really know uh, that what you have today is what, you know, we look at the book of Romans and we talk about the doctrine of salvation. You know, we're going to be looking at Romans 3, 4, and 5. I mean, it's the justification by faith and all those things. How do you know that's what Paul wrote? And some people even come up with theories that, uh, that certain doctrines have been put into the Bible or other doctrines taken out of the Bible. How do you know? You see, I was raised in a Christian family, but most of the time when you're raised in a Christian family, I sort of had the idea that the Bible sort of floated down from heaven uh, in a leather cover with gold-edged pages with the thumb indexing. I mean, isn't that, that's all I had ever seen. So I wasn't aware of what the history of the text really was. And this is, I believe, this is the key apologetic issue in our day. Because when the enemy wants to shut down Christians, the easiest way to do so is to attack us on this level. For example, uh, if I were to ask everybody in this room, and, and please be honest with me here, if I were to ask everybody in this room, what are the two longest textual variants in the New Testament where the manuscripts disagree, that contain the most words, how many of you would feel confident that you could identify the two longest textual variants in the New Testament? How many of you would feel really confident that you know exactly what I'm referring to? I see one and I say someone going, please don't ask me in front of everyone, but I'll sort of go like this, maybe. It's Mark 16, 9 through 20, the longer ending of Mark. And one of the most favorite stories in the New Testament ends up in every Jesus movie, even if it has nothing to do with the Jesus movie. It still ends up there anyways. John 7, 53 through 8, 11, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Those are two major textual variants in the New Testament. The earliest manuscripts do not contain those texts. And so people use that. And if you've never heard that before, if you don't have some background to understand these issues, I've met many a young person, gone off to university. We didn't talk about it in church. You get hit with the unbelieving professor and you're silenced because you don't know how to respond to the attacks upon your own text. This Look, my great-grandparents didn't have to worry too much about this. My great-grandparents on my father's side were married in Dundee, Scotland in uh, 18, 
think it was 81 or something like that, emigrated to the United States. And they didn't have to worry too much about textual criticism and where the manuscripts came from. But you know what? We're all connected to the internet now. Every one of us has smartphones. We can't avoid these things. We have to deal with these things. There are answers, but we need to know what they are. Now, first question, how many variants? You've got to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. Now, what is a variant? A variant is any place in the handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament where the wording differs. Spelling, word order, whether a verse is there or isn't there, whether a word is there or isn't there. Um, if there's a difference between the manuscripts. Now, how many manuscripts do we have? We have about <clears throat> the number changes and because we're finding new manuscripts, but also because uh, we're discovering that sometimes one manuscript is actually made up of a couple of different manuscripts. So the number goes up and down. But the last number I saw was 5,717 handwritten in the Greek language manuscripts of the New Testament. All right, that's just, that's just Greek. We'll discover later how many Latin and things like that. We'll talk about that later on. But the Greek is the original language of the New Testament. So how many? 5,717. There's about 1.3 million pages of handwritten text. Now, if I were to ask everybody in the front row here, front row on each of these sections, to copy down two pages worth of text, and then take their, what they copied, and give it to the next row. Then they copy it, give it to the next row, all the way back to the back. How many differences do you think we'd end up with by the time it got back to the back? Especially as a person in front of you writes like a doctor. <laughs> then there's no way it's going to make it to the back row at all. Okay? So keeping that in mind, if we have 5,717 manuscripts, about how many variants do you think we have? Now, it's funny. I normally ask when I'm teaching this in a class, I just taught this, for example, down in Potrasum, South Africa, a couple weeks ago. And I asked the students there, and these are, these are seminary students, and the general guesses were between four and I think someone said 2,000. Four and 2,000 was the numbers that was given to me. Now, do you all have, do you all have seat belts on your, on your seats? Because you might need them here in a, in a second, okay? Let me, let me give you... The generally the conservatively understood number is about 400,000. Let that sink in for a second. Given that there are 138,162 words in the New Testament, that's nearly three variants per word, or at least that's what we're told. Now I'm giving you how it's presented, then I'm going to give you the context, so relax. But you need to know the facts. So we are told no one can have any confidence that the text they read today accurately reflects what was originally written. And normally they stop right there, assuming that we don't talk about these things in the church, so we don't know what the rest of the background is. And that sounds pretty bad. 400,000 variants, three per word. In fact, here's a, here's a graphic that would show you, here's the, the total number of words on the top and then the total number of variants down below. That doesn't, that doesn't look very good. But I'm here this evening to tell you what they don't tell you and what you need to be able to tell them. First of all, 99% of all variants do not impact the meaning of the text. Variations in spelling and word order make up the vast bulk of the variations. In fact, if I were to try to explain the vast majority of variants in the text, I would have to teach you Greek before you could understand what the variants actually meant because they don't translate into our language. They don't have any meaning. 
One of the, most, one of the biggest textual variants in the New Testament is something called the movable new. You know in our language, you're supposed to say an apple. You're supposed to put that, you don't say a apple. At least not you're supposed to not say that, but a lot of people do it anyways. But uh, Greek has the same thing. You're supposed to put in a, a, what's called a movable new when you have two vowels right next to each other. Many of the early scribes didn't get that, and so you can't even, it, it does not impact meaning or anything along those lines whatsoever, and yet thousands and thousands and thousands of those variants are that of that nature, things that do not impact the actual meaning and translation of the text. So about 1% of 400,000 means about 4,000 meaningful textual variants. Out of 138,162 words, is about 2.9%, or one meaningful variant every three pages. But only half of these are viable. What do I mean by viable? Viable means that it could be the original reading. So for example, if, if we find one manuscript from say the year 1300 that has a peculiar reading in it that's not found in any earlier manuscripts, not found in any earlier translation. We had translations of the New Testament in the early centuries into Latin, Boharic, uh, Coptic, Syriac, etc., etc. So it has no earlier attestation whatsoever. And the first manuscripts from 1300 years after Christ, well, that's not a viable reading. If, if there's nothing else in the manuscript that gives us information that this is actually a manuscript copying from a really early, unusual manuscript, it's not a viable reading. So only about half of those are viable. So that means there are between 1,500 and 2,000 viable, meaningful New Testament variants. That is quite a different picture than the idea of three options for every single word in the New Testament. So let's think about this for a second. Simple fact. If I only have one manuscript, let's say of the Gospel of John, how many textual variants will I have if I only have one manuscript? None. Because a variance is a difference between manuscripts. So if I only have one manuscript, I'll have no variance. But what's the problem with that? What if we only had one manuscript of the Gospel of John? What do we have to assume if we only have one manuscript? that that one scribe got everything exactly right. Let's, say, let's, let's do the thing again, where I, I gave the Gospel of John, we had all the time in the world, and so I give the Gospel of John to everyone in the front row here. And then you copy the whole thing, it's gonna take you a while. Your hands are gonna cramp up. And some of you might not wanna do this work, but hey, that's just the way it works. And then you copy it, and then you copy it, it goes on to the back. Once it gets to the back, we're going to have uh, two, four, six, eight, ten. We're going to have 12 copies. By comparing them together, and then if we have some from people in between, by comparing them together, that's how scholars work the New Testament text. But what if we only had one? What if we just pick one manuscript from the, the guy in the green jacket right there? We pick his. Now, what if someone in front of him missed something. It's not his fault. And what if, Lord forbid, he made a mistake? And that's we got, only got one manuscript. We have to trust that he got it exactly right. What you want with an ancient manuscript is you want many manuscripts. You want them from many different places and many different times. You want independent witnesses. That's how you reconstruct the original text. If you only have one, that's not good. And yet a lot of people, that's exactly what they'd like to have, one. You see, what we want, what I want to know is what John wrote. 
what Matthew wrote, what Luke wrote. I don't want to know what a scribe 500 years thought John should have written. And so I want to have as many manuscripts as possible. So if you've got 5,000 manuscripts, that's why you have such a large number of variants, but that's actually a good thing. There are many ancient works where we only have four or five manuscripts, and they come from five to 900 years after the text was originally written. We don't have a lot of confidence that we know what those books originally uh, wrote, originally said. Not so with the New Testament. As I said, there are over 5,700 cataloged manuscripts of New Testament books in Greek, the average length of which is 200 pages long. That's about 1.3 million pages of text grand total. So I would say 1,500 to 2,000 meaningful and viable variants, over 1.3 million pages of hand-copied text spanning approximately 1,500 years is an amazingly small percentage of the text reflecting an amazingly accurate history of transmission. One might say it is downright miraculous. But, and especially remember one other thing, I don't even have time to expand upon this, but up until the year 313, the Roman Empire was killing Christians. Not every year. It was most intense between 250 and, and 313. But there would be periods of persecution before that as well. And there were many manuscripts that were destroyed. And so given that the, the Romans were attempting to destroy this text, the fact that we have so many and have such a robust manuscript tradition is an amazing thing. But we still need to understand where that 1,500 to 2,000 number comes from. Even when the variant does impact the reading, in the large majority of instances, the careful student of the text can see which reading is original. Many of these errors involve common scribal errors, mistakes we continue to make to this very day when copying from one text to another. Here's an important example from the history of the New Testament. In fact, I'd invite you to look at this in whatever Bible you utilize, or I'll be putting it on the screen so you can look at it up there. Look at 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1 in the King James Version says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. All right? I grew up on the King James. And so that sort of flows off the tongue real easy. And let's compare that uh, with a translation I was associated with for a while called the New American Standard Bible. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now for uh, the colorblind gentlemen in the, uh, in the audience, and there are, always are some, the phrase, and such we are, is in red. And you might say, are you picking on people? No, there are always some colorblind gentlemen that don't know what I'm talking about because they can't see red. So I always mention it to them. And so the phrase, and such we are, is not found in the King James or the New King James Version of the Bible. Now, why would that be? Well, you need to understand, it isn't a matter of the idea that uh, the... Anglican translators of the King James back between 1604 and 1611 didn't like the idea of being adopted as children of God, so they took it out. That's what you hear people do all the time when they're comparing Bible translations. They always want to assume the absolute worst. Now, there are some bad Bible translations out there. There are some cultic Bible translations out there. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their New World Translation, which is not a translation. It's a perversion of the Bible. It's intentional. We know that's to, that to be the case. But uh, generally, uh, far too much um, emotion is inserted into this particular discussion. 
uh, when you're trying to come up with conspiracy theories as to why there are differences. The reason there's a difference between the Greek, the Greek text that the King James translators and the New King James translators used doesn't contain the phrase, and we are. The modern Greek text that we use, based upon many more manuscripts, does contain this. Well, why? Why would that be the case? Notice it says, this is a glowing example of, and this is the, the wonderful uh, Latin term you get to use this evening on your friends and family if you go out to eat afterwards. Uh, you might try to use this on the waiter, see what they think uh, if they're bringing you your dinner. Homoi teluton. Homoi teluton, which simply means similar endings. Similar endings. Now, it's funny, this illustration no longer works as well with the younger generation as it used to. Uh, because uh, some of us that have this much gray, uh, we wrote our papers in high school and college on something called a typewriter. <laughs> I had an IBM Selectric. That was pretty, that was pretty advanced. Remember, remember the, some of you going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All you young millennials are going, what are you talking about? <laughs> when you copy something, you just cut and paste, right? No. You actually had to find a way to prop your book up and keep it open without it falling closed, and then sit there and type from a book um, into, back and forth, back and forth. That, yes, that's why you should respect your elders. <laughs> because we not only did that, but there were dinosaurs walking by the window outside. So it was a pretty, had to do it quietly. So it was a rough time. That's why we, you should respect us. But anyway, uh, Think how many times you have been copying a word ending with such combinations as I-N-G, T-I-O-N, E-S-O-S, common endings of words in the English language, and when looking back at what you are copying, have mistakenly started with a different word that had the same ending. So in other words, you're copying, you see the word education, you type T-I-O-N, you look back, you see T-I-O-N, you continue on, there's only one problem. You're on the line below where you just were. And so you end up deleting, inadvertently, everything in between. And unless you, have to, unless you go back and proofread, <laughs> uh, and of course, when you're typing, if you go back and proofread and you made a mistake, you know what you get to do. Take that sheet out, crumple it up, throw it away, and start all over again. Yes, that was a long time ago, but that's how mankind did it. Let me give you the information on 1 John 3.1. There it is. Everybody got it clear? Okay, we can move on. No. Um, here is in the Greek New Testament, and I, I forgot to grab, I'm sorry, uh, my laser. I normally have a really cool laser. Not only do I use it to point to things, uh, but if people fall asleep during my lecture, I threaten to, if they're snoring, shoot the laser in their mouth, makes their eyes glow. I take a picture and put it on Facebook. So that keeps everybody awake, and it, uh, there's no snoring or anything like that at all. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very, very helpful. But I forgot to grab it. You, you don't think, you don't think I, I would do that? No, 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 don't worry about it. it, it it's okay. You know where it is, but that's okay. Um, if you look up in the Greek here, there, the third line down, there's a little red square right next to the phrase chi esmen in Greek. And if you look over on the right-hand side down at the bottom, there's uh, the second line from the bottom, there's a little green square, which corresponds to that up there. And then there's some manuscripts listed right next to it. Now, what this tells you in the critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which is a wonderful thing to have, uh, we don't hide any of these things. This information is available. Anybody with an iPhone or an iPad or anything else can carry this stuff around with them. What this tells you is that that phrase, those two Greek words, chi esmen, are not found in these manuscripts, KL04969. And then the funny looking little 
It's called the Fraktur M. If you ever read Fraktur, it's a German font. Uh, M means the majority text. And then VGMS means certain manuscripts of the Vulgate. In other words, the Latin Vulgate. Now, what does this tell us? Well, the majority of Greek manuscripts do not contain this phrase. So why are scholars so confident that this is the original reading? Well, here's where you need to understand something. Ancient writers made the same kind of error that we make today. Here's the relevant portion of the Greek as it would have appeared in what's called the unseal or minuscule, majuscule text of the days of the New Testament. Now, what you need to understand is that for the first nearly 900 years of the transmission of the text of the New Testament, it was written in all capitals, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation. Now think about what that looked like. All capitals, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation. Uh, anybody in here studied New Testament Greek? Got a few New Testament? This is not what your New Testament looks like, is it? No. Uh, we use what's called a minuscule text today. We have capitals and small letters, and you have space between words and punctuation and all sorts of stuff like that. Most people, even, even seminary students, have taken three, four years of Greek when they start looking at the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament and going, what is this? It doesn't look like what we're accustomed to today. And so it basically looks like a long line of capital letters, if you can imagine trying to read something like that. So let me use color. Uh, oops, uh, did that do that? Oh, I guess it didn't. All right, let's see if I can go back to it. Um, ah, here it is. Well, I see it in color. Let's see if I can bring it up this time. There it is, all right. Again, for the guys who are colorblind, sorry, it doesn't work for you. But you'll notice the second line, you have what looks like M-E-N, mu, epsilon, nu. Then you have chi, esmen, and esmen ends with mu, epsilon, nu. And so the word that we might be called is clathomen. We are is S-men. They end with the same three letters. This is a classic example of homoiteluton, an error of sight where a scribe is copying something. When he goes back, lo and behold, uh, he picks up at the wrong point and inadvertently deletes what is between the two. So when we see examples like this, there are errors of hearing because some manuscripts were produced in a scriptorium where someone was reading the text and you're writing it down. And then there's errors of sight. When we see these types of things, we are able to determine what the original uh, is. Now, the majority of the 5,700 plus Greek manuscripts date from after 1000 AD, comprising the majority text, that M that I showed you before. The earlier texts are called papyri, written in unseal, or as we've seen, majuscule text, all capital. And we already saw what that, uh, what that looks like. Here's a chart that gives you an idea of where the manuscripts come from as far as age, second century up to the 16th century. And you can see it, the vast majority come after the 10th century and they are the minuscules. Now, why would there be such a disparity as far as numbers? Well, first of all, um, when you think of a manuscript that was written in the second or third century, what are you gonna look like after 1800 years? And it's made out of paper. The fact that we have any of these manuscripts left is amazing when you think about it. Um, and so uh, there's another reason. Think about what happened historically. I love teaching church history and uh, uh, people have always asked me, what two classes did you take in college and seminary that have helped you the most in doing apologetics and doing radio programs and television programs or unbelievers are throwing questions at you, stuff like that. You know what the two classes were? Greek and church history. 
Greek and church history. Those are the two areas that people, they approach the Christian faith and attack us from. And most of us, let's be honest, church history began for us with Billy Graham. (laughs) That's not really church history. Now you're in England. You know better than that. You've got, you walk past history here every single day. And yet many of us don't know that history. We need to know that history. It's very, very important, especially the ancient history. But if you know something about history, you know that in about the second and third century, the Western church began switching over to using Latin as its primary language. And so Greek was being spoken in North Africa, Palestine, uh, uh, Constantinople, places like that. But then something really, really important happens between 632 and 732. How many of you right now feel confident you know exactly what happened between 632 and 732? One, two, three, four, about a dozen. Muhammad dies in 632, and between 632 and 732 is the century of Islamic expansion, where Islam expands out of the Arabian Peninsula, all across North Africa, across the Straits of Gibraltar, into Spain and Portugal, all the way into France, uh, all the way up through the Holy Lands and toward the gates of Constantinople until that advance is stopped in 732 at the Battle of Tours. So obviously when Islam takes over the majority of Greek-speaking lands, That's going to impact the production of Greek manuscripts in the churches in those areas. And so the final manuscripts that are being produced in Greek-speaking areas from that period onward all tend to be of the same type because they were from around the area of Byzantium, Constantinople, and things like that. There's much more I want to say about this, but we only have so much time this evening, and I'm hurrying as it is. I want to show you some manuscripts. Because you've got your Bible, and it sits there and it says, some manuscripts say this and some manuscripts that. I've discovered the Christians would actually like to see a couple of these. The problem is I have a bunch of stories that I want to be able to tell you about these manuscripts because I've seen a bunch of them. But I don't have time to, and that really bums me out and makes me unhappy. But anyway, this, we may have found, you may have heard some stuff on CNN over the past couple of years. We may have found some first century fragments of Mark, but... We're just not sure. Some people sort of jumped the gun and announced that we had before it could really be vetted and examined in a scholarly fashion. So you've got to be careful about doing things like that. So for most scholars today, most people agree that this little fragment is the earliest fragment we have of the New Testament. It's about the size of a credit card. It's written on both sides. And by the way, we've only found six scrolls of the New Testament. Every single thing else was written in codex form. In other words, like we have books today. For some reason, Christians did not like scrolls. They wanted a, a book like we have the New Testament today. We don't know why. We just, it, it, lots of theories, but we don't know why. So it's written on both sides. And what's amazing about this to me is that Many liberal scholars want to tell us the Gospel of John's. It's the latest gospel. Back in the 1800s, if you went to seminary in Germany, you would have been told that the Gospel of John was written like 1870. I'm sorry, 1870, right. Uh, was written around 170 AD, uh, 140 years after the time of Christ, so on and so forth. And, and that was the viewpoint that, uh, that the leading scholars had. And so it's wonderfully ironic to me that this little fragment comes from the book of John. It comes from John chapter 18. This side is verses 31 through 34. The back side is 37 through 38. This was just the very top of the page. And when was it, how do you, well, how do you date a papyrus? You go up to it and say, hey, you want to go out? No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
It's a little papyri humor there. Um, how do you date a papyrus? There's not a date on it. You can't, you know, no one put up at the top, you know, written on such and such a date. So what you do is you compare the handwriting with other known papyri from that time period. And so when this was discovered in the 1930s, right here in London, by the way, uh, of course, it didn't come from London. It was uh, stolen from Egypt and transported to London, like a few other things that you've got around here. Um, <laughs> entire big buildings full of stuff, actually. Um, but um, uh, when it was first discovered in the 1930s, they sent it to the four leading papyrologists of the day. Three of the four placed it. Now, what you do is you, you give a 50-year time span. So you give a date, and it's 25 years each direction. They put it in 125, so as early as 100, as late as 150. And the fourth one pushed it back into the first century, about 10, 15 years earlier than the others did. So let's say about 125 AD for this particular scrap. Well, that causes the, 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 uh, the liberals a bit of a problem. If you're trying to say John was written in 170 and we have copies of it from 125, that sort of messes with your theories, as you can imagine. So, uh, and by the way, it's, it's, you remember what's in John 18? That's Jesus' conversation with Pilate about truth. What is truth, remember? I just think it's sort of wonderful that the earliest little fragment we have comes from right there. I think that says something, but we don't have time to expand upon it. I even have a tie with P52 on it. Seriously. I make my own ties with Greek manuscripts on them. Yeah, my wife thinks it's a little bit weird too, but that's okay. That's okay. Now, this next one, Colin isn't here, but you are. So you're, you're the next man in charge, right? Okay, when I talk about this at any church, do not ask me any questions about the theological meaning of this. Ask him. <laughs> He's ready. He's raring to go. Because this is an eschatology question. I don't touch eschatology in any church I go to because I want to be able to come back. <laughs> What's the number of the beast? We can stop a guy going by outside on a Harley and ask him, what's the number of the beast? You go, 666, you know? <laughs> Everybody knows. There's one little problem. There's just one little problem. The book of Revelation, we have the fewest manuscripts of the book of Revelation of any book of the New Testament. Did you know that? You know why? It actually makes perfect sense. The book of Revelation struggled to gain acceptance into the canon of the New Testament. There are a lot of people near the church going, seven-headed monsters, um, really? Does this really go to John? And, and that's a good thing. I mean, you don't want the early church going, we need more books of seven-headed monsters. Let's just get them all together. No, you want critical thinking going on. And so there are places, especially in the East, that just didn't even accept the book of Revelation for quite some time. So we have the fewest manuscripts of this book. We have two papyri manuscripts. And as you can see, this one uh, has seen better days. Um, that's a full page. That's what it would have looked like. But most of it's missing. And some of our early manuscripts, that's, you know, like I said, what are you going to look like 1,800 years from now? So um, here's the problem. The number of the beast is right here. It's the XIC right there with that little line above it. But that's not 666. It's 616. Now I'm going to try this. I'm not sure it's going to work. But Dan Wallace of Dallas Seminary has a theory that I think has some validity to it. He says 
666 is the number of the beast and 616 is the number of the neighbor of the beast. (laughs) Now, if some of your eschatology has been challenged by the fact that the earliest manuscripts we have say 616, that's why I say talk to him, not to me. I'm just the messenger. He has all the answers. So we move quickly from there to P72. This is P72. Uh, I got to see this very page in Denver, Colorado in 1993. It's so clear you can read it. Up at the top of the right side, it says Petru Epistole Bay. What does that mean? Second Peter. So this is the end of First Peter, the beginning of Second Peter. And this is the earliest copy we have of First, Second Peter and Jude uh, of any manuscripts we have. What I really love about this one, I got to hurry is this contains what's called a Granville Sharp construction. And what is a Granville Sharp construction? Ooh, that's, I made that up by myself, by the way. I didn't have anybody do that. I did the graphic design myself. So if you have to go, ooh, uh, you can, it's okay. I will not be offended if that, if that has to happen. But uh, the Granville Sharp construction is where you have two nouns connected by the word chi. The first has the article, the second one does not. Isn't that exciting? What it means is both are describing the same person. And in 2 Peter 1, 1, it says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in other words, it's a rule that says both God and Savior are applied to one person, Jesus Christ. Not our God and our Savior, Jesus, but our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's here in 2 Peter 1, 1. It's also in Titus 2, 13. And so it's rather important. And how many of you saw the Da Vinci Code? Okay, how many of you are not putting your hand up because you're in a church and you don't want to admit you saw the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> yeah, I know how that works. I had to read the book. I had to watch the movie. I did lectures on it for a long, long time. And the Da Vinci Code basically said that Constantine made up the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea. Here's a problem. Um, this manuscript is from about the year 200. And uh, the Council of Nicaea was 325. This was written at least a century and a quarter before Constantine came along, and it teaches what? The deity of Christ. So much for the Da Vinci Code. It was a work of fiction. Uh, Unfortunately, many people didn't realize that it was a work of fiction. I've got a whole story about when I first saw it and all the rest of that stuff, but I don't have time to tell you. So maybe sometime in the future we can do it more slowly. This I love, this is P66, and what I love about P66 is this picture, you can see what it looked like as a book rather than just a single page. And you can see how the papyri has broken off down toward the bottom and, and toward the top there. And that's where a book gets damaged, right? I mean, your own Bible, you can see that that's, that's where the damage takes place. And so that's what's happened uh, to P66. And this is the beginning of the Gospel of John. And here's another example. Kai theos ein halagos, and the word was God. Uh, right there in John 1.1, 1, 1, again, long before Constantine came along, we can demonstrate beyond all, all contra- contradiction that the deity of Christ was taught in these early uh, papyri as well. So we've, we see P66 comes from the Gospels. Um, uh, P52 is from the Gospels. P72 was from uh, 1st, 2nd Peter. And then we have this one. Uh, this one, if you ever get a chance to pop on over to Dublin, visit the Chester Beatty Library. You will be very happy that you did. This is on display there. Um, and I will tell you the story about what happened with this one, because I saw this very page. Now, P46 is very interesting, 
because you'll notice what we have here. This says Pros Philippasius to the Philippians. P46 is our earliest collection of Paul's writings. Okay? Now, two quick things. I hope that you all are going to be nice to me. Because you see, many times I ask audiences to help me with this and, and they're not nice to me. Because I ask them a question. I say, now look, I'm just going to ask you all to, to vote. Because if this is a collection of Paul's writings, there's one book in the New Testament that's anonymous, right? What's the book? Hebrews. Now, the King James says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, so there are a lot of people who believe Paul wrote Hebrews. But here's the question. P46 is the earliest collection we have of Paul's writings. Does it or does it not contain the book of Hebrews? Now, this is what happens. I say, okay, how many of you think it contains the book of Hebrews? People put up their hands. How many think it does not? People put up their hands. And you know what? At least half the audience just sits there going, Mm-mm. I'm not voting. You can't make me vote. I will not make a fool of myself. I, like, like, like I'm going to go, hey, you were wrong. I'm not going to do that. And so I get disrespected over and over again by people who will not vote. So you're not going to do that to me, are you? You're all going to vote, right? Okay. So how many of you think it does contain Hebrews? How many of you think it doesn't contain Hebrews? And how many of you did not vote? Every time. It's human nature. It's amazing. Don't know how that happens. It does contain Hebrews right after Romans. Now, all that tells you is someone around the year 200 thought that Paul wrote Hebrews. Wow, something really excited about over here. Oh, yeah. Woo. Get excited about this stuff. Textual criticism on the rise. Yeah. Anyway, vitally important manuscripts. They're there. And by the way, what's really neat is there's a, there's a, a group in uh, Dallas, Texas, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, that are going around the world and they are photographing all these manuscripts. And many, many of them are now available online. You can go look at these things for yourself. I'm really, really going fast here, and I'm really skipping stuff, unfortunately. And the clock just keeps moving. Can someone turn that off? Turn, do something with it, because uh, it's causing me a problem here. Now, after the peace of the church in AD 313, Christians could have professional scribes copy the scriptures. At this time, the great vellum or leather manuscripts begin to appear, including the three greatest of these, Sinaiticus, which is abbreviated with the Hebrew letter Aleph, Vaticanus and Alexandrinus. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus may well have been among the Bibles copied with imperial monies at the time of the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Now, you all get the opportunity of seeing Sinaiticus anytime you want to. You go to the British Library, you walk into the reading room. I did in 2005, and that's pretty much what it looked like, sitting right there. Right next to it was Codex Alexandrinus. I was the only person in the room, and I thought I had busted into some place I wasn't supposed to be. I'm like, am I going to get in trouble? But there it was right in front of me. That's what it looks like. But that doesn't tell you the whole story. Here's what it looks like when you look at the, the actual wording. And folks, that's not printed. That's handwritten. It is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And that's what a professional scribe can do. And uh, there actually, we, there's entire books on Codex Sinaiticus and how many different scribes were involved and whether it was four or five or all sorts of stuff like that. But even then, you can see, for example, second, second column, about a third of the way down, you can see stuff written in the, in the margin there. There's something in the first column in the margin as well. There's something right down here. There's something right down here between lines. You can see right there. And so there were still 
you know, corrections that had to be made and things like that. This manuscript was in use um, for hundreds and hundreds of years, from 325 until about the 1800s, about 1,500 years this manuscript was in use. You can go to codexsinaiticus.org and you can blow up the pictures and you can look at the, at the, at the actual writing and, and uh, see a, a textual variant, for example, right there. You can see a second line from the bottom. And you can even use different, that's the same text, but you can use light that's going straight at it or from the side. So you can actually see the surface of the manuscript. and think that it's, it's amazing what is available to us today. Lots more I can tell you about Sinaiticus. Don't have time to do it. Uh, another major uh, unseal that is written from that time period is Codex Vaticanus, which is now online from the Vatican Library uh, in the same way that, Va that uh, Codex uh, Sinaiticus is. And then, as I said, Codex Alexandrinus, also in the British Library, uh, available today, too. So, just the facts. Aside from the 5,700-plus Greek texts, we have early translations in Latin, Coptic, Sahidic, Boharic, uh, so on and so forth, uh, that are important witnesses to the early text of the New Testament. Combining these, the Greek text yields over 20,000 handwritten witnesses to the New Testament. We have more than 124 Greek manuscript witnesses within the first 300 years after the writing of the New Testament. And here's the key, folks. Far more than any other work of antiquity. Because, see, when you go to the university, you'll have lectures that will express doubt and skepticism about whether we can know what the New Testament originally said. Then they'll turn around and quote from authors that were writing contemporaneously with the New Testament, and they'll never express doubt as to whether what we know, we know what they originally wrote. Though we have far fewer manuscripts written at a far later time period for them than we have for the New Testament. There is an inconsistency in how this is handled that might indicate a bias on the part of scholarship in regards to Christianity. Yes, even here in the UK, that can actually happen, believe it or not. In fact, we have 12 manuscripts from the second century that is within 100 years of the writing of the New Testament, or the finishing of the writing of the New Testament. These manuscripts contain portions of all four Gospels, nine books of Paul, Acts, Hebrews, and Revelation, comprising a majority of the books of the New Testament we possess today. Again, no work of antiquity even comes close to this early attestation. In fact, the average length of time between the writing of most works contemporaneous with the New Testament, such as historical works of Pliny, Suetonius, Tacitus, and their first extant copies is between 500 and 900 years. So in other words, for the other works that are being written at this time, the average time frame between when they were written and the first manuscripts we have is normally in that range between five and 900 years. We have all these manuscripts going to within 100 years of the majority of the New Testament, over against five to 900 years for almost anything else from that time period. I normally play a, a, a video at this point, but I have to hurry. When I debated Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman is probably the leading English-speaking uh, critic of the New Testament today. Uh, he's written a number of books, misquoting Jesus, and Jesus interrupted, and forged, and all sorts of things like that. He's an apostate. That's not an insult, that's a fact. He was once a person who made a Christian a profession of faith in Christ. Uh, he went to Moody Bible Institute, um, Wheaton College, then he went to Princeton Seminary, and uh, he no longer calls himself a Christian. He calls himself a happy agnostic. That makes you an apostate. You once were with us, you've now gone out. He is a critic of the New Testament. And we debated in 2009 on this very issue. You can go on online and, and watch that debate if you want to hear how these things 
can, can stand up against the leading critic of the New Testament. And when I asked him at one point about the age of the manuscripts of the New Testament, I'm not sure he realized what he was, what he was doing, but he, he made the statement. He said, we have much earlier attestation for the New Testament than for any other work of antiquity. And he's the leading critic. Much earlier attestation than for any other work of antiquity. That is a fact. That is reality. Now, often the transmission of the text of the New Testament is likened to the phone game we played as kids. And I think outside the United States, it's sometimes called Chinese whispers. Um, that we call it the phone game uh, when I was in kindergarten. Uh, but you sit in a circle and you whisper something to the person next to you and then it goes around the circle and by the time it gets to the last person, it's in Chinese. And so that's, that's why, not sure how it happens, but uh, that, it, that's what happened. And it's normally humorous and you chuckle about how it's gotten totally changed. Um, that's what we are told the New Testament was like. You have one copy going to another copy, another copy, another copy, and all these errors are just, just piling up. That is not how it actually took place. It's vitally important to realize the transmission of the text of the New Testament did not follow a phone game single line. Not only are written documents less liable to corruption than what is whispered in the ear, but the phone game involves a single line of transmission. The New Testament originated in multiple places, written by multiple authors, with books being sent to multiple locations. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is this multifocality leads us to the final considerations that demonstrate the bankruptcy of the modern attacks on the New Testament. To make specific changes in a text like the New Testament, which originally circulated as a group of texts, not as a single body, would require a centralized controlling body that could make wholesale changes in these widely dispersed texts. Once again, uh, that little-known uh, broadcasting group here, BBC. Um, if you watch some of the documentaries that they do on the Bible, uh, you'll see this, this theoretic, this, this conspiracy theory coming out. And you'll have these cowled monks in rooms, and they're all making copies on manuscripts and so on and so forth. And, and the idea is that they could have inserted the deity of Christ, inserted the resurrection, or taken out reincarnation or whatever else, as if there was some ability for the church to edit the text to make it sound like what they wanted it to sound like. And that's what people say. The New Agers say that. Our Muslim friends say that, that it's been corrupted, etc., etc. This is the accusations being made. But the problem is, given how the New Testament came to us, given how it came through multiple lines, given how it was written at different times by different authors sent to different places, it was never under any one person's or group of person's control. If it had all been written in one place, the manuscripts were, take, were kept in one place, then we'd have a problem. But we don't have that problem. It is absolutely impossible that that could have taken place. So, for example, the fact of the matter is, no such central agency ever existed or could have existed. Christianity was a persecuted religion made up mainly of the lower classes. There was no central authority that could ever have gathered up all the texts and made wholesale changes. Such was impossible in the earliest days of transmission. And given that we have such ancient texts now, obviously could not have happened at a later point without giving clear evidence. What do I mean by that? Well, we can prove beyond all doubt this kind of corruption did not happen. Since papyri have been found that date back to the second century and that only within the past 100 years, had any later centralized organization sought to alter the text, 
those later texts would show stark differences as older and older manuscripts are found. But just the opposite has been the case. So in other words, if, if, if Dan Brown was right in the Da Vinci Code, and at the Council of Nicaea, he tried to gather up all these manuscripts and come up with a new gospel and turn Jesus into a god rather than just a plain old guy who had a wife and a kid, which was his theory, um, then we already have papyri manuscripts today that were buried in the sand long before the Council of Nicaea came along. No one could ever have gotten hold of them. And so if those later texts had been altered, then as we find these earlier texts, there'd be huge changes. And the reality is there aren't any huge changes. If you take P66 or P75 or any of those early papyri manuscripts and just use them as the basis of the New Testament or the books that they contain, you'll have no differences in theology or teaching whatsoever. None. None at all. So those accusations are simply completely false. Those made by Muslims, those made by New Agers, they fall upon the mere consideration of the historical context and the data itself, the rapid widespread distribution of the New Testament manuscripts in the first two centuries precludes any purposeful centralized corruption. It also gives rise to the need to study the relatively small number of textual variants because you had to have lots of people making manuscripts. You had to have many scribes involved in doing that. But this leads to the last point, an important point. When scribes copied their texts, they were very conservative often incorporating marginal notes into the text since they could not be sure if the note was original or not. So if you had a, if you had a manuscript from someone and you, you didn't know who copied it, you couldn't go and ask the scribe, hey, there's something in the, in the margin here. Is this your comment or is this something you, you missed and you put in the, in the margin? If you couldn't ask them, the tendency of the scribe was to go ahead and insert it for fear of losing something. That's how most scribes, that's how most scholars believe uh, John 5, 4 in the New Testament came to be. It's an explanation of what was going on with the angels stirring the waters uh, at the Pool of Bethesda. And so they would include those things rather than deleting those things. This means they even preserved mistakes or silly readings. This may sound bad at first, but consider what it really means. The New Testament text is tenacious. Tenacious, that means readings are preserved in the text. All readings, including the original readings, are still a part of the manuscript tradition. This is why the believing textual critic can persevere in even the most difficult variants. One of the readings is the original. In fact, when I asked Bart Ehrman, here's the leading New Testament critic in, in, in the English-speaking world, I said, Dr. Ehrman, where in the New Testament do you think we no longer have? Can you point us to any place where you believe we no longer possess the original reading of a text of the New Testament. He could only point to one place in, in I think it's 1 Peter, where it's talking about Enoch. And he thinks the original has been lost there. That's it. That's all he had. You would think, listening to most critics, that we don't have a clue what the New Testament originally said. The reality is we know very well what the New Testament originally said, and the critics know it as well. So, in summary, 400,000 variants, 99% inconsequential. Most thoroughly documented work of antiquity, not only in the number of manuscripts, but in the early attestation of those manuscripts. Spread all over the world quickly. No controlling authority could ever put things in or take things out. 
any later editing would stand out clearly in comparison with ancient manuscripts. Now, I have thrown a ton of stuff at you. And this is just the basics. This is just the, this is just the ground floor. What I want you to hear is this. Believing scholars have been working on this material for a very, very long time. We have answers to the most vociferous critics. The vast majority of folks, my daughter went to a, uh, went to a community college. Her first year, she ran into a, a nasty anti-Christian professor. I mean, the man used profanity in class. He was, he was just nasty. And it was painfully obvious as I gave her an MP3 recorder to start recording what he was saying as I would listen to his lectures, that here was a man who had just had a surface level familiarity with Bart Ehrman's writings. That's about all it was. And yet these are the men that are instructing our young people. Folks, ladies who are housewives, am I actually suggesting you need to have an understanding of this? Yes, I am. Am. You know why? Because you're probably be the one to instruct your students, your children, as to why they can trust the New Testament. Folks, we don't live in a nice, safe world anymore. The world hates what we believe. Now, I think Jesus told us not to be surprised at that in John 15, didn't he? But we've had it easy. We have had it easy, my friends. That easy day is passing. And we're going to have to start counting the cost of discipleship. And if we want to be people who continue to give a reason for the hope that's within us, not only to those outside, but to our own families, then we all need to know why that Bible we have in our hand or on our smartphone, why does it have the form and shape that it has? I haven't even touched on other issues. The canon. Why do you have 66 books, not 74, like the Roman Catholics down the street? What about allegations of forgery? All those types of things. Folks, there are answers. And I can stand up here and say, yeah, I've, I've dealt with these things. That doesn't mean that you have the answers. That means each one of us. And folks, I hope you, I hope you see this not as a challenge for me, but I hope you see it as part of your worship. Because if, if we believe we possess the word of God, then we should love that word of God. We should be memorizing that word of God. And given the type of effort some of us put into learning online games... You would think putting a little effort into knowing something about the history of our own Bible might be a little more important to us. Some people say you shouldn't talk about all this scholarship with people. The Bible says we have the Holy Spirit of God and he's called the Spirit of Truth. And I can trust the Spirit of Truth to minister to Christ's sheep. So we do have the answers. God has preserved his word in a beautiful way. I've just given you an outline of how it, how it, how it happened. But I am so thankful. God wants us to have his word. Don't ever take it for granted. We have so much more than people before us ever had. We should be thankful for it. But there is a verse that says, what does it say? To whom much is given, much is required. If we live in a day where we have more information that verifies the truth of the New Testament, don't you think we should know about it and be able to explain it to others? I think we should. Thank you so much for your attention this evening. God bless.